guys can be seated. It's really good to be here this morning. For us to be able to be together uh, is, is a real blessing. And for those who are at home, to be able to worship with us uh, with modern technology. So that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, so I hope you're well. Um, this morning we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And last week, Jared taught out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So obviously we're skipping over some material there kind of bookending this letter. Uh, So I just want to review a little bit about where we've been and and where we're going and just give us some context about where we are in Scripture. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the the Thessalonian church. This church was located in a city called Thessalonica. It was a, a port town. It was a very busy city in the Roman Empire. There would have been a lot of commerce, a lot of travelers, a lot of people in and out of that city. You could kind of think of it as a mini New York. And so this would have been a really good place for missionaries to go plant a church if they wanted the gospel to spread. And so Paul, Timothy, and Silas on one of their missionary journeys traveled there and they began to teach in the synagogue And through that, many Jews came to faith. Later, many Gentiles came to faith. And so, a church was established. As the church was established, they stayed there. They they lived with them, worked with them, built them up in the faith, taught them. But we learn in the book of Acts that their time was cut short. They were run out of town. Uh, There was a persecution that rose up, and they kind of had to, one of those, leave in the dead of night to save their lives. And so they've left, but Paul's heart is still there with those early believers. And he's, he's concerned about them. He knows that they're facing difficulty. And so he sends Timothy back to go check in on them just to see how they're doing. So Timothy travels back to the church and spends time with them, and, and he reports back to Paul some encouraging news. They're doing well. They're continuing in the faith despite this persecution. But there's also some troubling news. And the troubling news is that it seems that some false teaching has crept into the church. There's some false teaching kind of centering around the second coming of Christ. It seems that they had received a letter that was false uh, that told them that Christ had already come. And so there was a lot of confusion and anxiety and worry because they felt like they had missed out. On top of that, some of their brothers and sisters in Christ had recently passed away and they were worried about what would happen to them. Was this God's judgment on them that He came back and didn't take them back with Him? Or or what was going on? So really, the Thessalonian church 2,000 plus years ago was facing an issue that all of us face pretty much on a daily basis. And that's the problem of mixed messages, of of different voices telling you different things. So the Thessalonians have found themselves in this situation in which they are mourning, they're facing persecution, they're suffering, yet they have multiple voices telling them conflicting things about what it all means. And this has caused uncertainty for them. And the uncertainty has caused questioning. And they're questioning, beginning to question God's plan for their life. 
they're beginning to question their own salvation. That's the salvation of those who had passed on. And so Paul writes this letter not only to correct the false teaching, but really to build them up. To encourage them. Now like I said, this, this issue of mixed messages or conflicting messages is something we face today. It's nothing new. And so the issues that the Thessalonians were facing 2,000 plus years ago are issues that we face today. Many of you in here have gone through significant trials in your life, difficulty, you've lost people that you've loved, maybe you've had marital issues, maybe you've had issues with your, with your jobs or whatever it may be, but you've faced issues in your lives. And when that's happened to you, you've probably gotten a lot of different advice. Some advice from friends, maybe you got advice from coworkers, advice from folks at church, advice from family. And a lot of times that advice is totally conflicting, right? You hear one thing from this group, another thing from this group, and it can be disorientating. It can be confusing. It can cause you to question, maybe even question God's plan. So in the last 60 days in our country, our world's been turned upside down in a lot of different ways, right? This virus has crept in, and as that's happened, we've struggled with conflicting voices. And it seemed amplified recently. We have multiple different government agencies telling us different things. We have news outlets who kind of weave conflicting narratives. We have uh, folks who are telling us, man, this is no big deal. Rip off the mask, let's hug and kiss, and move on, right? Then you've got one buddy over here who's like, man, I'm, I, I've got a year's worth of food. I'm in my bunker. Don't come see me, or you're going to meet an AR, right? And uh, I'm not coming out until there's a vaccine. And, and then there's a lot of us who are kind of in between on that deal. I, I'm sure that's where most of us fall in here in the in-between. But in the last few months, I'm sure that anxiety has crept in for all of us, especially in those early days when we didn't have a clear picture. Maybe you worried about your own health. Maybe you worried about the health of people that you loved. Maybe you worried about your job or your business. Maybe you lost your job. So to say the least, it's been disorientating for us. But the thing that we need to see as we look back on history, crises are nothing new. We live in a broken world, and, and they come one after another after another. In the early 1940s in England, the, the British people were facing a different kind of crisis and really one with more dire circumstances than what we are facing today. They weren't facing a virus, they were facing an army. Uh, the Nazis had marched through Europe. They were basically standing on the shoreline of France. They were ready to invade England. Thankfully, England was an island and that wasn't so easy to do, so they sent their air force. The Luftwaffe uh, would come in every night. They would bomb the cities. Many people lost their lives. Buildings were lost. Jobs were lost. Workplaces were lost. Kids were sent to live with their relatives in the country. Families were broken up. And it was in this context that 
there was a lot of questioning. There was a lot of concern and uncertainty. And, and uh, amongst this uncertainty, C.S. Lewis gave a series of talks on the BBC in which he defended the Christian faith. These talks were later turned into a book, which I'm sure many of you have read. If you, if you haven't read it, you're probably familiar with it, but it's called Mere Christianity. And in this book, there's this quote. It says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So what Lewis is pointing out is that in this life, we have these longings. We have these desires. We have these yearnings for something better. We think this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And Lewis came to the conclusion that these yearnings point us to the fact that we were made for something beyond this life. Now, I'm sure these brand new Thessalonian Christians 2,000 years ago could identify with what Lewis was getting at here. Many of them may have found themselves thinking amongst persecution, being dragged in front of magistrates, being accused of sedition, of being thrown in jail, of, of their loved ones dying. They were probably thinking to themselves, this is not the way I envisioned my life. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This current crisis that we're going through in our world, in our nation, may have some of you thinking here today, maybe more than ever, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And you'd be right. That's what crises do. They shine a greater light on the brokenness of this world. And it's in these times that we relate to Lewis's observation that we have these desires for something greater that cannot fully be satisfied in this world. Now sometimes we do a really good job of dulling those desires. We try to, we try to fill these desires up by more activity, by more stuff, by more and better vacations. We do this in an attempt to drown it out. We attempt to find security in our careers, in our 401ks, in our health, in our accomplishments. But what the coronavirus has done for us is that it's pulled back the curtain on our idols. And it's shown us just how frail they really are. In a way, that's been a blessing for us because it helps us to see that these things that we were counting on, these things that we were hoping would save us, are really not reliable at all. They're very poor saviors. And in the end, they're going to be dust. So when we realize that, when we think about that, kind of in light of this revelation that this world is ultimately fading away, that our idols are ultimately worthless, how do we live? How do we live together as a church? How do we interact with the world? In chapter 5 here of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us some great practical instructions on living in this broken world that's full of conflicting voices, that's full of mixed messages. In 4 and 5, Paul reminds us of this great hope that we have in Christ. 
that ultimately He is coming back to make all things new. Ultimately, He is going to redeem this broken world, that He is going to wipe away every tear, that illness will be no more. Paul makes it clear that we cannot know the time of day when this will happen, but that we should stay prepared. We should be awake. We should be living as Christ has called us to live. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he calls on us to be sober. It's a calling to be self-controlled. It's a calling to be vigilant. It's a calling to be awake. He then goes on to use military imagery with the breastplate and the helmet. We have the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. It's this imagery of defensive armor. So we put on faith, hope, and love every day to help ensure that we're prepared for whatever may come our way in this world. Verse 9 points out to us that our hope is never in our own works. It's not in our own will. It's not in our own actions. But it's in the work of Jesus Christ. Paul points out that that great work overcomes the grave. It overcomes death. And so with that in mind, Paul instructs the Thessalonians in verse 11 to encourage one another, to build one another up, to share this good news that drowns out the noise. He goes on from verse 12 on just to give us some practical instructions on how we do this. He shows us what it looks like to walk in this, how we interact with leadership, how we interact with each other, how we interact with God, how we interact with prophecy. So let's take a look here at verse 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So some of you, uh, or, or many of us in the past, have been in churches where there wasn't peace amongst the congregation and the leadership. Now hopefully you wouldn't say that about this church. If you would, then let's talk about it. We don't want that here. But you, you may have seen that before. Maybe you were in a church like that, or maybe you've just seen it from afar. But those are ugly situations. They're unproductive. They're a poor witness to the watching world. And so, Paul here is encouraging, encouraging us that instead of strife, he's urging us to respect those who are over us. To esteem them highly in love because of what they do. Now, a good leader will be a laboring leader. The Greek verb here that Paul uses for labor was used uh, most often to describe manual labor. So we get a picture of toil, of strife, of struggle, of sweat, of struggle to the point of exhaustion. And so that's the kind of leadership that we're called to as leaders of a church, as leaders of your home, as leaders of your workplace. Most of you are leaders in one way or another, or you will be. That's the kind of leadership we're called to. This is the kind of self-sacrificial leadership that Christ modeled for us. So these leaders should be respected. They should be held in high esteem. They should be allowed to lead. They're not idolized. They're not held on a pedestal. 
but they shouldn't be seen as disposable or dispensable or discounted in any way. Others should come along beside them to help enable their, their leadership. And when we see this type of relationship within the church, we see peace within the church. We see harmony. We see a healthy environment. It's a beautiful witness to the world and ultimately it enables gospel work. In verse 14 and 15, Paul then turns his attention to the fellowship of the body. How we interact with each other. Verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So in these two verses here, Paul gives us six commands on how we live with each other and how we interact with the world. First command, admonish the idle. Basically, Paul is saying, we need to work. We need to be productive. Now, I just want to point out, before I get in trouble here, that not everyone who works doesn't get a paycheck. So all you ladies or, or guys staying at home, raising children, you work harder than any of us. You often don't get paid or recognized. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about is there were people who were living on the dole within the church. They were taking advantage of generosity. And Paul is saying here, anyone who is able needs to work. We were made to be productive. And so he's, a, he's encouraging the body to admonish those who are, who are idle to get to work. Second point here. Encourage the faint-hearted. So the faint-hearted are those among you who are on the verge of giving up. If you spend any time with them or been around them, you know who they are. They're the downtrodden. They're the depressed. They're the worn out. They're the, they're the struggling. We're called to encourage them. Not to beat them down further. To encourage them. To help them. To strengthen them. To get down in the ditch with them to get your hands dirty and walk beside them. Third command here, help the weak. Now the weak could be the, the physically weak, the mentally weak, the emotionally weak, and maybe even the morally weak, the people who are struggling with particular sin in their life. Paul encourages those who are stronger to serve those who are weaker. This is what Christ did his whole life. Now this is the big one here. Be patient with them all. So the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, be patient with them. How easy is that? It's not a real easy deal, right? I mean, those of you who are parents who are raising kids uh, or who have raised kids or who will be raising kids, but those of you who are in the middle of it, you, every day you're admonishing the idle Right? You're, you're encouraging the faint-hearted. You're helping the weak. Especially if you homeschool. Brooke and I got a dose of that the last few months, and we understand now. 
But how easy is it to be patient in those situations? My kids could tell you that daddy's not always patient in those situations. It's hard. It's hard. It's not easy. But this is our calling within, the, within our families, within the church, within our workplace. This is our calling to be patient, to be an encourager, to be a helper. This is what Christ calls us to. Now these last two commands are certainly not easy. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always do good to one another. So when someone really does you wrong, not a perceived wrong, but they really do you wrong, what's your first reaction? Are you like baking them cookies and mowing their yard, offering to to clean their house for them? Are you offering to do them good? I mean, your first reaction is probably like, how can I burn their house down and uh, get away with it so I don't have to go to jail? That's our human reaction to being wronged. We want to get even. And usually we don't just want to get even, we want to go beyond that point. We want to do worse to them than what they did to us. How many books and movies are kind of centered around this? I mean, this is a huge thing in our culture, revenge. Yet we know that if we've got a little experience under our belt, that if you've ever gone down that road, it doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring fulfillment, maybe just for a minute, but it doesn't last. Revenge never fulfills long-term. Resentment leads to bitterness, it leads to anger, and it can destroy your life. You can spend your whole life dwelling on it. It's like a cancer that grows and grows and grows and takes over, and if you don't have it surgically removed, it'll kill your soul. I think it's one of Satan's favorite vices to keep us out of fellowship with the Lord. Forgiveness is a radical thought. It would have even been more countercultural when Paul taught it to the Thessalonians in the Roman culture. Revenge was central to their culture. But God calls us to something better. He calls us to forgiveness, but He also calls us to service, to doing good to those who've harmed us in the past. It's a radical thing. And I propose this is something that is really impossible for you to do without what Paul addresses next. And that's worship. In verse 16 through 22, Paul addresses the way we interact with God, the way we worship. He instructs us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So we're called to rejoice in the Lord always. Now this isn't a call to be happy in all circumstances, but it is a call to joyfully worship in all circumstances. It's a call to hold tight to the steadfast hope that you have in Christ 
even when things look impossible, when they look bleak. Second command here is to pray without ceasing. Paul exhorts us to be a people of prayer. Prayer isn't just for like NASCAR. It's not for just weddings and funerals and mealtimes in the South. It's a call to bring all of our petitions, all of our longings, all of our hurts, all of our thanksgiving, all of our doubt. It's a call to bring that to the Lord throughout our lives, day by day by day. And if you think about what an amazing privilege it is that you have as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, you have 24-7 access to the Lord of the universe. Think about that. We need to think more on that. Lastly, we're called to give thanks in the midst of all circumstances. Even the current circumstance we're in, thanksgiving should characterize the heart of the believer. And in this thanksgiving, we are trusting our sovereign God who can turn any circumstance to our ultimate good. In verse 19, we're told not to quench the Holy Spirit, which has come to reside in us as believers, and not to despise prophecies, but test them and hold fast to what is good. Now, at Christ Community Church, we would affirm the supremacy and sufficiency of Scripture. So we would say that in this post-apostolic age, prophecy does not add to Scripture. We would say that prophecy exists in a way to illuminate Scripture. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not divining the future, but it's for building up the church. It's for teaching. It's for encouraging. The Spirit works in our lives as a way to illuminate the truth and then to bring that truth to us in times of need. So all of our thoughts about God... All of the words that we speak about God or write about God should be tested against His Word. All of the teaching that you receive should be tested against His Word. There's many false prophets out there who are proclaiming a watered-down gospel or a distorted gospel. And so you should always be testing their teaching against the Word, and including any teaching you hear from this pulpit as well. And if that teaching doesn't line up, you throw out the bad. Hold fast to what is good. So as I mentioned earlier, all of this that Paul is calling us to do, it really does go against our nature. Our nature is sin our tendency is not to respect our leaders, but to buck authority. Our tendency is to discard the idle, to discard the faint-hearted and the weak as lost causes that are drains on our society. Our natural reaction is to seek revenge on those who harm us, to complain and grumble in all circumstances, to only seek God in prayer when we are in really, really, really bad trouble to despise teaching, and to gravitate towards false prophecies that make us feel good, that give us promises of health and wealth. So this is our natural state. This is what our heart is inclined to. So how do we overcome it? 
How do we live as we are being called to live by the Lord? The answer is that you don't do that on your own power. You're not pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and willing yourself to live this way. You're never going to be able to do it on your own. So let's look at what Paul says in his closing words here in 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The Thessalonian believers were struggling. They were facing persecution. They were grieving the loss of people that they dearly loved. They feared that they had missed out on the second coming of Christ and they were confused, even doubting. We're not that much different today. When we really step back and get a clear and honest glimpse of ourselves, we realize that we are the idle, we are the weak, we are the faint-hearted, we realize that our sin has caused us to commit evil against the holy God. But instead of casting us off, instead of destroying us, the God of the universe, the one who created everything with a word, the God of infinite power has been patient with us. He's been patient with us. He humbled Himself. He died on the cross. He took on the sins of the world. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Those desires that you have for something better are okay. You were made for another world, and that world is coming for all who have placed their faith in this patient, all-powerful Savior. And this is our hope everlasting, and this is our security. No matter the circumstance, virus or no virus, health or no health, little or abundance, this is your hope. And that hope never fades away. And its significance will never diminish. I just want to leave you this morning with some lyrics from a song that has comforted me, comforted me throughout the years. It's, it's a, a song called Shadow Feet by Brooke Frazier. I'm not going to sing it. Definitely not a soloist. But I just want to read the lyrics to you. Walking, stumbling on these shadow feet toward home, a land that I've never seen. I am changing, less and less asleep, made of different stuff than when I began. And I have sensed it all along, fast approaching is the day. There's distraction buzzing in my head, saying in the shadows it's easier to stay. But I've heard rumors of true reality, whispers of a well-lit way. When the world has fallen out from under me, I'll be found in you, still standing. When the sky rolls up and the mountains fall on their knees, when time and space are through, 
I'll be found in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this world of so much uncertainty, of so much pain and brokenness that can surround us, that, that we have a firm foundation in you. That even though the, the mountains roll up and the ground falls beneath our feet, we will stand in you, Lord, that you are strong, that you will surely do it that you have the power to save us. We acknowledge that we are weak, but you are strong. We just praise you for your grace this morning. I pray that if there are those here who, who do not know that grace, that, Lord, you would reach into their heart, that they would cry out to you. That we as a church could be faithful to you, that we could be a light in this city. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.